Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the Cinematheque at the University of Wisconsin. From Madison, Wisconsin, I'm Jim Healy, Director of Programming for the Cinematheque. Beginning Thursday, March 4th at 7 p.m. through Sunday, March 7th at 7 p.m., the Cinematheque, in collaboration with the UW-Madison Division of the Arts Interdisciplinary Arts Residency Program, will present a special free view-at-home double feature of director Edgar Wright's The World's End, originally released in 2013, and Fritz Lang's Metropolis, originally released in 1927. The program was specially curated by current interdisciplinary artist-in-residence Litza Bixler. The hero of The World's End is the perpetually irresponsible and immature Gary King, played by Simon Pegg, who, confronted with a fast-approaching middle age, rounds up four old school buddies hoping to recapture the excitement of a legendary evening from their youth. The group's mission to recreate a debaucherous and never-completed pub crawl in their small British hometown is potentially thwarted by the realization that the citizens in the village have been replaced by a mysterious, non-human species that our heroes eventually refer to as blanks. Following Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, the third feature in director Edgar Wright's genre-blending trilogy of acclaimed comedies, each co-written with leading man Simon Pegg, is a hilarious and action-packed sci-fi satire featuring a uniquely collective villain. In order to make the comically creepy blanks visually memorable, director Wright once again recruited frequent collaborator Lietze Bixler to choreograph the movements of the performers. And in the sci-fi epic Metropolis, German filmmaker Fritz Lang brought to the screen one of the most ambitious and iconic movies ever made. The story takes place in a city of the future, in which slaves toil underground for a ruling class that lives above in an urban utopia. Amidst this setting, two young idealists hope to unite the workers and bring the two worlds together, while a mad scientist robotic creation threatens to topple Metropolis. Lang's prescient vision of an urban world in disarray was restored to its original premiere length when over 20 minutes of footage missing for over 80 years was discovered in South America. Metropolis, in its various versions, has still remained the most iconic of all movies about futuristic cities gone to hell. This Cinematheque at Home presentation will allow viewers to experience Lang's complete vision. The director employs specific and rhythmic choreography for both performers and moving machine parts, a stylistic touch that has been a continual inspiration for artist Lietze Bixler, who personally selected Metropolis for this presentation. Both movies will be available for viewing beginning Thursday, March 4th at 7 p.m. To receive instructions on how to view both movies for free, send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu. That's info at cinema.wisc.edu. And simply remember to include the word Bixler, that's B-I-X-L-E-R, in the subject line. No further message is necessary. Both movies will be available to view through Sunday, March 7th at 7 p.m. On this episode of Cinema Talk, our special guest is Lietze Bixler, choreographer, filmmaker, movement director, visual artist, and screenwriter. She has produced work on stage, screen, and art galleries, and has been a working artist and educator since 1995. Her work in feature films includes contributions to three movies directed by Edgar Wright, Shaun of the Dead, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and The World's End. She also served as choreographer for the 2014 jukebox musical Walking on Sunshine and the salsa dance comedy Cuban Fury, starring Nick Frost, Rashida Jones, and Chris O'Dowd, also released in 2014. 
Bixler is currently Interdisciplinary Artist in Residence in UW-Madison's Division of the Arts Interdisciplinary Arts Residency Program. The program brings innovative artists to UW-Madison's campus to teach semester-long interdepartmental courses and to publicly present their work for campus and community audiences. The program is funded through the university's Office of the Provost. The Spring 2021 Interdisciplinary Arts Residency Program is presented by the UW-Madison Division of the Arts and hosted by the Dance Department with Professor Li Chaoping as lead faculty. Co-sponsors include the Art Department and Department of Communication Arts. Here now is my talk with Lietze Bixler. Lisa Bixler, welcome to Cinema Talk. It's good to have you. That's my pleasure. Nice so, to hear and see you. <laughs> same here. Yeah, even though we're both in Madison and talking over computers here. Um, I know, it's crazy, isn't it? We're actually in the same place, but still <laughs> nice. so distant. <laughs> yes, true. But nice to have you here. Um, before we talk about... Uh, your definition of a choreographer and what it means to be a choreographer, specifically in relation to your collaborations with uh, Edgar Wright and, and your other work for uh, the cinema, for movies. Can, mm -hmm. you can you tell us a little bit about your journey to your career? Um, who were the people and what were the things that uh, inspired you before you began your work? Sure. So I, I started off as an undergrad in fine art with an emphasis in photography. And I was also doing a lot of performance art, or what we'd call live art sometimes in Europe. And as a consequence of that experimentation with performance, and also on the basis that I'd been dancing since I was young, I took uh, many of the dance technique classes with the dance majors, but I wasn't a dance major, so I just audited them. Um, and then I also took some acting and directing classes at that same time. Then shift emphasis to costume design. I was working in the costume department um, because I thought that would draw my visual art skills and also my interest in kind of theater and performance. I did that for a year. And then in the end, they kind of created a degree, which I think they were interested in creating anyway, uh, in performance studies and that's what I ended up getting in the end I think in order to get me graduated um, so that was my undergrad so even at that level I was kind of working across a lot of art forms um, and then funnily enough I so you know Trey and Matt from South Park sure yeah, so they were at uh, the University of Colorado at the same time that I was and they did a musical as part of, I think, their senior project, a film called um, Hannibal the Musical, I think. Sure. <laughs> or Cannibal the Musical, something like Cannibal, that. Cannibal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, my ex-husband is in that. So ah, it's just a strange okay. aside. So, yeah, so I was, I was around during the filming of a lot of that. Right. And so my ex-partner worked again also across a lot of art forms theater physical performance but also with an interest in film and so that's why he acted in that and he was like irish sheriff or something in that huh. um so that was all the like 
US-based undergraduate stuff. And in the middle of all of that, I had gone to England to Lancaster University as a theatre exchange student. So there I was in completely within the theatre department, which was very experimental. Um, so this was sort of the the kind of rising heyday of live art and physical theatre, um, a breakdown of traditional narrative text within theatre and, and much more of an emphasis on um, physical performance. So some of the people I was at that on that course with went on to form a company called Third Angel, which is based in Sheffield and kind of along the lines of Forced Entertainment. So Forced Entertainment's a well, relatively well-known British experimental theatre company. And those companies are both still going in Sheffield. And I worked a lot with um, the performers from Third Angel and through Third Angel, I also met a filmmaker that they collaborated a lot with called Rob Hardy, who's a cinematographer who shot um, Mission Impossible and um, uh, Annihilation, a variety of films like that. And he shot some of my early films. So this is the journey kind of towards film. And in the middle there, in between going to Lancaster University and meeting all of those kind of experimental theatre people, I did a master's degree in dance anthropology and choreography. And it was at the same time, Cheryl Dodds was writing a book about dance on film and doing a PhD in that. And there were not many PhDs in dance at that point, let alone specialising in dance film. Mm. And she was there doing that book at the same time that I was there doing my master's degree. Um, so there was this rising interest in dance film, which had always been there. And actually, if you trace the history of film, in many respects, movement on film is part of its history. The idea of it being primarily narrative now is actually late to the party, you know, which didn't really come until after talking was introduced so it was always sure. a very physical form so the idea that you separate out dance and movement from film to me is is actually quite strange because I see the two as intimately connected from the get-go but there was this desire to kind of separate out this separate field of dance on film and Cheryl Dodds did a book called I think Dance on Screen and there were there were funding pockets of funding that were created specifically for that especially in Canada and in Europe. Now, I don't think there was quite as much in the US, to be fair, but there was a lot of money also through broadcasters in Britain because they have that stronger public broadcasting environment. You know, they've got BBC One, Two and Three. Right. Um, and then because there's that strong public broadcasting environment, even the commercial channels like Channel Four had often a very strong arts programming piece and channel four was one of the broadcasters that did a lot of dance for the cam camera pieces so they there were many years where um they had these programs of dance for the camera films and this also dovetailed with or, or kind of wove into the 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 high point of music video 
So in many respects, you had these three areas, sort of experimental film, dance on film and music video, all of which were doing similar things in that they were working with film, not as a commercial narrative project, but playing around with these other aspects. And you saw the fall of dance film coincide with the fall of music video. So those both kind of rose and fell at the same time. And I'm not sure why or if anyone has even really looked at at whether that's just a coincidence or whether there's actually a, a legitimate correlation there. What, what, anyway, year, so, what, what year do you see that as happening roughly, like the early part of... So I would say the height of dance film where you had all these festivals being created and all these pockets of funding was from kind of the mid 90 early okay early 90s going up to I think the last dance for the camera thing that I remember was 2005 in the UK this is this is in the UK yeah, but yeah. but also in Canada so there uh-huh. was also you saw a similar trajectory in Canada and similar in Europe I think there's there was still a little more funding within France hmm. Germany and Belgium than there was in the UK um, but again not as much so you know I know when I came to search for funding again within that world it was a very noticeable change where suddenly there just wasn't those pockets of money hmm. So you have this this kind of economic environment that people are coming into that's encouraging cross art arts integration, you know, kind of muddying those dividing lines between art forms. You have music videos existing as a testing ground for young filmmakers mm. to um, try out, you know, lots of experimental ideas. And the budgets were, were actually relatively hefty for and yet allow for a lot of experimentation both formally with you know things like um, motion control and, and steady cam and and things that you might do in post you know there was that was when you really started to see a lot of frame cutting happening within music video and you saw that trend sort of in the mid 90s and and up where from there and that those techniques merging with choreography so choreography that then would be frame cut or would be cut in such a way that your the the choreography is happening as a consequence of the interrelationship between camera post and and what you're actually making directly there in the moment yeah and then you see it filtering out into mainstream narrative films at the time too like i'm I'm Thinking specifically of Tony Scott here, and you know, and I think and, of Tony and, Scott a lot when I look Spike at Jones, yeah. Spike Jones, yeah. Spike Jones is another Especially one. Especially his and Michelle videos. Gondry, yeah, yeah. 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 Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones both came up, and so so what you had is this very clear testing ground for filmmakers, where there was a testing ground in the UK, Canada, and Europe for um, within music video, but also within experimental short films. And dance films sat within that. And that was the world, that was the context that I came up within. Okay. So really, you know, to kind of understand my journey in a way, it's understanding this wider journey of which I was a part. And when, and in the middle of it all, you said when you were working with this PhD candidate and her study of dance on film, you were able to separate, as you say, this kind of history of 
what what we typically normally think of as dancing in in the history of of movies um and and so most of us might think of a choreographer as someone who designs dances and directs dancers but but i i gather that with with everything that you took in during that time and everything you worked on i mean you're a polymath you've done writing and directing and uh, art installations theater film videos uh you've 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 learned i assume that being a choreographer that's not entirely it is it directing dancers and and designing dances i mean this is the interesting thing where you see this this very different set of there's a delineation between choreographers that would be kind of considered art choreographers that were working within what would be referred to as contemporary dance in the UK or even classical ballet or, you know, the the, the art-funded forms versus commercial choreographers who traditionally would work maybe on the West End and then maybe, uh, you know, music videos, commercials and film. And in the, the 80s, there was a, and 90s, there was a very clear line between those groups. So there was some crossover. So you had choreographers like Michael Clark in the UK, who did music videos for the punk band The Fall. Um, He was in Prospera's books. Um, So that had started. So I was part of that, that transition in that I had my own company, I was doing my own work. And my own work was very much about um, this relationship between photography and still images and film and moving images. So I did one piece called Moving Stills, which started with photographs and the movement developed from photographs and like we were dressed like black and white photographs, you know, in shades of gray. I did another piece where m- all of the movement was drawn from a silent film style of movement, those very exaggerated almost dance-like ways of moving that you see very much in Metropolis. Um, And I think at that point, Metropolis was a a reference for that. And I took those movements and that was my, those were the motifs that were the starting point for that piece. And also things like the mad scientists that you would get in a lot of those early films, those, those film motifs. Right. Archetypes. Yeah, they formed the basis of my work. I did another piece called Pista La Junta, which which referenced referenced westerns and all the kind of classic westerns. I took movements from those westerns. Those formed the basis of the choreography. And in that case, it was a gallery piece that also had projected film. So but I was really working as an artist in playing around with live performance, film performance, photography, projection. So I also knew a lot of filmmakers as a consequence of that um, because that's really where my work sat. It was really influenced by genre film. And as a writer now, I work, I write genre movies. You know, that's, that's, it, it, that's the, the interest... Even though I've worked in lots of different art forms, the 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 ideas there is there are through lines through yeah. all of the work. Well, so this great period of experimentation, at least you know, are pu- publicly funded. A lot of it experimentation. Yeah, I was publicly funded for that work. Yeah, um, both your work and 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 a lot of what was going on in in the UK, as you said, comes to end around t- 
2005, um, which is right around the time, just just uh, just after the time that you first work with Edgar Wright. At least I assume that was your first collaboration on Shaun of the Dead, which was released uh, well, in 2004. We- we had actually collaborated before that on um, a couple of music videos and a commercial. So we first met on a commercial. I think my memory's right on this. And then we did a music video for a band called Blue Tones, which was a steady cam shot that with a whole video is an entire shot and it's a spoof on Bugsy Malone. So we did both of those projects before Shaun of the Dead, but you're right. I was, you know, I had, I did my last piece with the company in 2001. I did a dance for the camera piece in 2003. So you can, and and then from basically 2004 onwards, that's where my CV goes very heavily and more onto the commercial side of things. Partly because I was in a position, unlike a lot of my British colleagues, where I had done my undergraduate in the States and I had a lot of student debt. Um, so there were there were some financial reasons why I, at that point, focused heavily on, you know, earning because you could just about eke a living, you know, uh, on publicly funded work. But not but it's really nice to have to... money from a studio production uh, or a big budget. Yeah, but it right wasn't over. enough to pay off huge student debts. Um, right. So, you know, so that was a unique position for me that my other colleagues didn't necessarily have. So a lot of the people that I was collaborating with at that time have stayed within the experimental theater kind of art worlds. Um and and then a few of us went much more into narrative film. So Rob Hardy is one, you know, he works as a well-known cinematographer. Um, another colleague from that time period was a woman called Celia Haining, who cuts The Crown now, um, and then myself. Uh, and, and around all of that time, there was also something else. I was living in Sheffield, and that was really the rise of warp. So warp music... Um, the rise of kind of British electronica and house music and Warp was a record label that developed out of Sheffield and then went on to also have Warp Films. And one of the early producers that I worked with within music video um, came out of that world and I still work with her to this day as well. So, and she's attached to a lot of my projects as a writer. So that was was kind of the world that I was existing within. And then... um, you know, through the commercial work is probably is how I met people like Edgar. But he was attracted to my work not because of my commercial work, but because of my work, my own creative work with my with my company. Right. Well, then, what were what was how did he bring Shaun of the Dead to you? What was what was the expectation uh, uh, for you on that on that specific film? So. We were friends while he was writing that with Simon. So I was kind of around uh, when that was happening. And in a, in a very informal, in a completely informal, we were friends sort of way, <laughs> not in any kind of official capacity. But while they were writing that, it was kind of with the understanding that I would kind of work on the movement and we had a lot of informal conversations about um how movement worked within film because i had done all of this work around stylized movement which sometimes wasn't necessarily 
dance, but crossed over into that world of physical theater where you were using gesture and quotidian movements. Um, I did a lot of things where I was taking like the film movements from, you know, a Sergio Leone movie and then building the choreography from there. Hmm. So it was this feedback loop between starting with film images, going to choreographed images and then going back to film images again. So I think that appealed to Edgar. Uh And the, the, the conversation we had where I was saying, I always thought like one of the scariest things is seeing people do things in unison because that's always so unexpected. We actually had that before Shaun of the Dead was even made. And then revisited that much later with uh, the world's end. What were you thinking of specifically when you when you when you talked about? I think because I unison? I had done that piece where I was using where I'd started with a lot of silent films as the movement, and Metropolis was one of those. I see, right. So the people going and, into work uh, and coming in coming in and out of their shifts in Metropolis. Yeah, and, and there these this 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 kind of idea. Of people being automatons. Yeah. Had you had you observed people, anything in in reality uh, that 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 inspired that work? Uh, was there something you saw on the street? People moving in unison like that? <laughs> no, that's the funny thing. Mm. You don't actually see that. It 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 just doesn't really happen. Even when people are all going the same direction, if you look at their feet, that they all have a different speed of walking. <laughs> So, you know, so that's why it's so weird if it happens, because it so rarely happens in the real world. And it's hard to make it happen. So even in Metropolis, I think they did a pretty good job. Quite a few of those shots, the workers, when they're marching in, are very much in time. There's a couple of shots where I spot the ones that are off. And it's surprisingly hard to get people walking in time or running in time is even harder. Like we spent a lot of time trying to rehearse that in World's End, but it was just really, really hard because when you're also after the intense performance of like you're really being chased, it's very difficult to think about, oh, I'm needing to hit a beat every time I run a step. But the walking, you can get there with rehearsal. You can get there with, with rehearsal. Um and then funnily enough, so we had a little bit of that at the beginning of Shaun of the Dead in the title sequence. Right. You can actually see the direct relationship to those workers coming in in Metropolis where their heads are all down and their shoulders are hunched forward. And then, you know, the figures with their heads down and their shoulders slumped either kind of outside the club or working in the um, the the market at the right. beginning of Shaun of the Dead during the title. So you already see a touch of that there. And then, you know, it makes sense when you're then dealing with characters that are robots to, and this idea of a hive mind. Hive and, mind, it, you yeah. know, yeah, I mean, that existed with Star Trek with, um, you know, what? Oh, invasion of the Body Snatchers. And, and Invasion of, yeah, exactly. And that was the other big reference for Edgar uh, was, uh, body snatches, and I think as a crew we all watch that. But for me, it was uh, Metropolis and Triumph of the Will were my two references right. that I brought to that. Well, back and to, you can actually see the similarities between those two pieces. Oh, well. sure, especially with the massings of crowds and you know, and the huge kind of buildings and yeah, yeah, and the geometric arrangement the geometric of, of angles, the masses yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so. Back to Shaun of the Dead, then, uh, much of your movement 
work, I would imagine, had to do with the non-zombie characters. Because the zombies are all kind of, I think one of the characters uses the word shambolic, right? They're all, they're all kind of flopping all over the place. But how much work did you have to do in terms of movement on the, on the shuffling zombies? We actually did a lot of work with the zombies because, um, and we and we had a lot of dancers, you know, who could do kind of extreme positions with their limbs. We also had people who'd had their limbs amputated in real life, so we had amputees in that. Some of which we used again, I think, in um, World's End. So there was a lot of casting, of finding the right people who could. I did. Like the main thing I did with them was what I called the baby walk, which is when you when you're looking at babies and they're first learning how to walk, they have this really their arms are often like out kind of at the side and they have this very heavy sort of walk, which will start slow and then speed up in order to stop themselves from falling over. Uh-huh. So in the auditions I had them do a variation of what I called the baby walk. Um and then, yeah, we, you know, I worked, I had zombie movement workshops that I did with all the extras. And same with the blanks in World's End. We had long days of rehearsals with all of them to kind of work on that movement. And also there was a lot of time spent casting to find people that, you know, were comfortable or able to do that very choreographed movement choreograph walking <laughs> and the casting session is it is uh is it usually you on your own and then bringing tapes and whatever to to edgar wright or are you together i feel like edgar m- might have been there in some of the show and the dead ones but probably not because he's usually busy doing other things naira was always there naira park the producer of all those movies so it was always me and Naira, and definitely during Well Done, I remember it just being me and Naira. Um, sure. So, yeah, and then we would kind of do a cut down between myself and Naira, and then that's what would get sent to Edgar. Have you have you ever consulted at all in uh, on the on the fight choreography and and, and action scenes? I, I know, I guess that stuff is usually relegated to. Uh stunt men and and stunt coordinators uh that's no of thing. it's it's absolutely basically where my work has always crossed over in terms of my work with edgar so in shawn of the dead for the kill the queen scene um we had a a stunt person that i was working closely with because there's the moment where the zombies getting hit with pool cues so there's just some things in there where we needed to have a stunt person as well and then I worked with Brad Allen on Scott Pilgrim versus the world as well as World's End and Brad you know Brad's super interested in dance as well and would bring kind of dance ideas into his fight choreography and I would bring his fight ideas into my dance choreography so we worked really closely together and we also worked really closely together on a dance fight scene for a film called Cuban Fury uh, with um, uh, Nick Frost I I wanted to ask you specifically about that because I was I was uh, I was very impressed with that sequence uh, in Cuban Fury and and uh, and what I always hear about fight choreography um, from a couple of a couple other directors I've I've personally talked to and a few other people I've heard on commentary tracks and in interviews is that you want to 
have uh, when you're when you're choreographing a fight, especially between two people, you want to have uh, as as close a space as possible to 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 work within to you know to make the fight that much more dynamic and tight and tense. Um, and this is not a fight scene. This is a this is a, a dance off between uh, Nick Frost and Chris O'Dowd, and it takes yeah. place on several levels of a uh, parking Top garage. Park. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and and I wondered about the challenges of that specific space. Uh, was it was it was it too broad? Was it too wide? Uh, place did that make it difficult? Is it better to have that many levels uh, to work with uh, when you're when you're choreographing a dance off like that? Well, I mean, speaking to your earlier comment about even just fight scenes, to choose to shoot them in a really tight space and really intimate, I mean, that's a choice and that that will give you something. And a lot of fight scenes are shot like that. What I really love about Brad's work is it's really balletic in many ways. It's very tightly choreographed and very carefully shot. So he shoots everything um in the rehearsals as I do as well because you're making stuff that works to particular frames um the downside of that approach sometimes is I'll have choreographed something so carefully to the camera that if they then want to change it in the edit it's it's really difficult to change it because it's already been so set so that's the the downside but the plus side is you can get these very carefully choreographed sequences both to camera and to um to the, the fighters or dancers and because that dance off is also a fight because they have they do actually start fighting towards the end but they're fighting through like salsa so they right. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 there's a mix of like uh, you know yeah. so brad came into the rehearsals and we worked those things out together where it starts off as a traditional arm sequence you would find in salsa but then goes into like a neck hold into what would be right. more traditional kind of fight thing and Brad also uses yeah almost wrestling he also uses a lot of um you know there's things like wires and on Scott Pilgrim we used a parallelogram there's lots of other tricks that you use you know to make those moves surprising and bigger because at the end of the day in all of those examples you've just given we're also working in comedy so in that case, it's not necessarily about creating like, you know, claustrophobia or fear or it, 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 it's a different thing that you're after. Yeah, you really want people to find it funny. And that I know that that car park dance off is was like one of the scenes that people said was the funniest scene in the movie. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's um, if you if you have any reason to see uh, Cuban Fury, it's it's this sequence. It's really, really great. I uh yeah, I highly super, recommend super it just funny. for that. Yeah. And also like the kill the queen scene, which is also really tightly choreographed in Sean the Dad is, is this is the also scene, listed as, is this, this is the scene in, in the, the pub? pub. Yeah. And the, yeah. and the, the, don't stop me now. And yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's often listed as people list that as what they think is one of the funniest scenes in the film as well. So. Well, it is, it's beautiful and it's beautifully uh, cut and very, very rhythmic and, you know, clearly very choreographed. It's something that, you know, uh, kind of uh, foreshadows Baby Driver by about 12, 13 years too, I think. Because well, uh, well, yeah, absolutely. We did a music video, which was the starting point for Baby Driver uh, with um, Noel Fielding from the Mighty Boosh. 
And Edgar and I did that. I mean, that was many, many years before Baby Driver. So he was already thinking about that idea, which he tested out in a music video. Um, and I didn't do Baby Driver. I was in the UK. That was done in the US. But um, yeah, we, we'd had those ideas for, you know, many, many years beforehand. And um, that's often how it is as an artist is you're, you have ideas that you play with kind of throughout your career and Edgar's no exception to that. Um, and yeah, you're right. The editing in Shaun of the Dead is really good. It's Chris. What's Chris's surname on that? You might have to look that up. Who yeah. did that. And then um, Paul Matchless, along with John Amos, did Scott Pilgrim. And Paul did World's End. Again, it might have been with John Amos. And then Paul did... Uh, Scott Pilgrim and I worked and he also did Man Up I think or he, no maybe John Amos did Man Up and then Paul did no Paul oh my god Paul did a film called Man Up which is with Simon Pegg and Lake Bell which also has a choreographed scene right. in it that I did but John Amos I think did Cuba Fury so and I was in in the edit on that as well. I work closely with the editors because in many respects, they're choreographing as well. And Paul in particular on World's End was often, that's when he first started being on set. So we would shoot a sequence and then he would quickly cut it. And I think he did that during the entire process of um, of Baby Driver. Right. And he did it again for Soho, uh, the f One Night in Soho, which is the film that Edgar's got coming out next. Right, that's to be his, yeah, his next project. Yeah. Uh, um, how widespread, I'm curious, is this uh, consultation of choreographers like yourself for movement going on in other non-musical movies and TV shows uh, right now? Are there, are there a significant number of directors who bring people like yourself aboard for, for consultation? Yeah, I feel like, yes. Like there's, you know, there's, there's a gang of us. I mean, I've kind of moved on to other things now, so I'm sort of not so much in that world as I was. But when I was, yeah, there was probably like a group of 10 of us that tended to do a lot of that kind of work. Um, Alex is another woman who did... World War Z, I think. Hmm. Is that the name no, of that? Another movie? zombie. I'm really bad at remembering. Yeah, another zombie. So I think Alex did that, um, and she does a lot of that kind of thing. So yeah, there were there were a few of us, and like I said, that transition, which I was kind of, I wasn't the first, but I was among some of the first of coming out of the kind of contemporary dance world rather than the commercial world. That was happening around that you know, in the nineties. Yeah. Um, well, so I'm, I'm curious, yeah. I'm curious because it's kind of my way of getting to thinking about directors and bringing on, uh, people like yourself to collaborate with and to contribute to their, to their films and shows, you know, because in a way, a lot of what you're doing is working with performers and, and directing them. So I guess mm -hmm. I just, I'm wondering if you'd reflect on a little bit on what ways are directors of non-musicals or non-dance sequences like choreographers uh, when they're when they're not 
working directly with somebody like you? And in what ways are choreographers like or not like directors? Uh, I, I mean, mean, if you go to the art world, choreographers are directors. So I was artistic director of my company and I made all the decisions about lighting, everything, the entire mise-en-scene, you know, that, that I would bring on other people, but I was essentially directing those pieces, whether they had text in them or not. Some of them did have text, some of them didn't have text. Some of them had films in, which I would have directed, some of them didn't. Um, I think maybe that was the challenging piece so the other route for a lot of commercial choreographers is they would have been dancers commercial dancers first and then maybe would have assisted and then they would have become choreographers and there are a lot of commercial choreographers where that was their route some of which assisted for me so Supple Nam who was my assistant on World's End then went on to become you know a wonderful commercial choreographer um Nikki Tro is another one of my assistants who's gone on to be in her own right, a, you know, a wonderful commercial choreographer. So, so that was the other route, but that wasn't the route that I took. I had come in making my own work and as an artistic director of my own company. And I think in many respects, that was probably the most challenging thing for me is suddenly being in a position where I was stepping back away from all those other decisions and I was essentially a gun for hire just coming in and doing this very small piece and I think it took a lot of just maturing and you know me developing skills of being able to do that the funny thing is is the more I developed the kind of emotional maturity to handle that well I probably pushed the work less hard, if that makes mm. any kind of sense. So, yeah, so there's a, you know, there's a challenge there. Like in some respects, if you're coming in as an artist in your own right, you push everyone, you push the director, you push the work harder and you, you know, then you get better at collaborating. And, and then sometimes you push the work less hard in an effort to just have everyone get along. So there was always like a, a challenge for me around that of not liking a lot of conflict and liking it even less as I got older and just wanting to have like a nice time. And then, you know, kind of learning that part of the skills in collaboration is actually being able to not only handle conflict well, but to see where it can be useful right. in making the idea stronger. Is, is your idea of pushing it, expressing your own ideas and trying to get them to come to life before the camera or is it more just working with individual performers to get them to excel at your at your direction and, and ideas? I'd say it's kind of a little bit of both of those or neither of those. It's it's what is the what's the central question that we're asking as an entire team, as an entire group? What's the story that we're telling and why? And then always referring back to that within that, the small piece that you're involved in. And that has to come from the director, I I assume. I mean the the director, the screenwriter, you know, the yeah, the within commercial film, yes, you know, that's that's very much how it tends to be structured, but that's because we've chosen to structure it that way. Um it wasn't handed down by God. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is another whole interesting conversation, even in relation to something like Metropolis, is there are aspects of the way that that story that is being told about workers within, you know, the Weimar Republic and with kind of capitalism being viewed as dying and the rise of communism and fascism and you know yeah. what's happening in the wider political world and the use the of religious industry, fanaticism i should say too yeah, yeah yeah all those themes that are in there but the film industry itself and this is i feel like something always important to remember it grew up first you know during the industrial revolution but also so it's structured in many respects like a factory so that's the other really interesting part of it where you're separating out people into these very specialized roles you know you have a cable basher whose job it is you know to move the cables around which makes sense when you're working to a really tight timeline but also has its downside so i think what you're seeing now is you're seeing a, a glimmer of an acknowledgement that the way that it's structured might lead, have some unintended consequences around representation, diversity, gender, all of those kind of things. So you're seeing, you know, when I started, it was and still kind of is a very male dominated industry. Um, I think I was just reading that even now it's still about between like 11% and 15% of like the top 250 commercial films that are directed by women. Um, when it comes to DOP, it's even tiny. It's like between two and 5%. Um, there are some, you know, reasons to do with heavy kit that lead to some of those. But there are also these other structural things in terms of how the industry structured. And this interesting idea of the auteur, um, when in, and when in reality, it is really a very collaborative form. So even if you have a director, I think I always think of it as their job is to sort of steer the ship um, and to keep. But I think everyone needs to also be aware that you're going back to what's the central idea, what's the question we're asking, what's the reason for this beyond you're doing this job in order to earn a living, in order to take care of your family and live and eat and pay your rent, you know, all those things that we have to do. Um, if you're choosing to work in a creative field like film, even though it has this industry commercial component, you know, the fact that we call it an industry, um, I still think it, it matters what stories you're telling and that you like the work that you're making. Sure. You know, back to The World's End, which is this huge production with, you know, it's it's crossbreeding multiple genres, yeah, uh, different kinds of storytelling, yeah, uh, and then there are a colossal number of moving parts. I mean, quite literally, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So... Uh, the moments for you to innovate or invent uh, with your ideas on a on a production like this is it uh, easier because there are so many uh, different parts, uh, different components going on, or is it is it um, does it just make it more complicated? I think 
both. It is complicated and you are just working on this one particular part, which isn't to say it's not important because it is, because it's part of the overall piece. Um, but I think for me, and this is possibly why, so I had already been shifting a lot of my time and attention into writing by the time I did World's End. But I think after that, so I did Cuban Fury after that and a few more films, but I had started making a concerted effort because I had things I wanted to say. And I realized that coming in in the capacity that I was coming in, I was helping other someone else express ideas that they had. And I felt like for me in film, it really starts with the script. Plus, that's just where I had another set of skills. Um, so, and that was the, the part I was always most interested in when I would work on a film was reading the script and figuring out kind of what we were doing at that level. So that's when I got more interested in going back to, well, what's the earliest stage of the I development of the idea? And, and that was the earliest stage. Back, you know, we were talking originally about this concept of the choreographer as someone who designs dances. Was it a particular accomplishment or, or goal of yours to be able to work on a film like Walking on Sunshine, which is a, you know, this classically constructed movie musical with these evenly, evenly dispersed singing and dancing numbers? Is that, uh, is that the ultimate for, for, uh, choreographer uh on a film i think so i think you know for a lot of choreographers yeah they want to get the musical under their belt but i think for me i like musicals and there are definitely a few musicals that are in my like list of best films of all time but i was never like completely obsessed with musicals and and i was not the person who was going out to the west end all the time or you know watching broadway musicals and there are a lot that i absolutely hate um i'm just not a sound i'm fan never have been don't like them at all this is all just my own personal preferences but just never spoke to me so i did write a musical i wrote a sci-fi musical which is very much very meta and very much a comedy when it comes to musicals i like comedy's the best the only non-comedy musical that i like is cabaret so um but I also work in a lot of comedy full stop. Like I've always liked comedy and even though, even my own work, it, even though it's quite weird sometimes, there's always a absurdness and a lightness in there as well. Um, so it's this, you know, but then also kind of horror aspects in some of my work. So I really wanted to do a dance horror movie. So that's what I'm writing at the moment. Um, because Are you I've writing always, the music too or just, uh, just a script? It's not a musical. It's a... It's a horror movie that. Has oh, I see. In okay. It. Yeah, yeah. Because that was the the musical part was the part that I wasn't as into. I liked dance films. Um, I always loved Pina Bausch. You know, I love dance in films, but not necessarily musical numbers. I appreciate it, but it's not necessarily what I'm as into. I'd say collectively, you know, when you look at your filmography and and the films you've contributed to and and how you've contributed, that there's um. There's definitely an interest in, in visual rhythm, and that's I think kind of comes round again to Metropolis, right? Right from the 
you know, it's a it's a silent movie. Although I guess you know one that uh, was at least in its first showings meant to be shown to this specifically written score by uh, Gottfried Huppertz, which which is how we're showing it. We're showing that version with Huppertz's score. But even you know, even if you you turn off the sound, you notice right away how rhythmic and choreographed not just the movement of the actors but of the the special effects and the literal the literal machine parts that you see in this film and yeah and and yeah. The, the duration of the shots and you know that that goes to create a rhythm within you know within seconds of that of the of the movie's first frames i imagine that's that's what that's what really drives you absolutely i watched that really really young metropolis and a lot of like charlie chaplin movies and buster keaton when I was young, and I was also a big fan of Philippe de Couflet, who's a French choreographer who also worked kind of in music videos and made short films and comes from this background of clowning and comedia d'art. And that was always a part of my physical theater training was the kind of clowning side of things. Um, and there's that lineage to vaudeville and uh, Chaplin. And I think you see that all the way through into Edgar's movies as well. You know, there's a lot of physical comedy in those films, in addition to the scripts being very funny. And they are very funny, by the way. When you read the scripts, they're usually laugh out loud funny. But there's all this wonderful physical comedy and comedy that's embedded within shot choice as well and how, and editing. Um, So, yeah, I think, when I write now, I, you know, people who read my writing now and comment on a lot of the set pieces, the use of rhythm and sound. Um, when I had my own company, I used all sorts of crazy sound. I would sometimes make a sequence and try like 20 different things to it rather than having a piece of music in mind and choreographing a piece to the music. It, it very rarely came first it always came later. I would make something and then say, oh, what would it be like if I put, you know, the Bulgarian women's choir on this? <laughs> I've done that with Metropolis as well, like just played it with different music in the background. Yeah, a lot of just, uh, programmers have done, you know, weird experiments where they, you know, found pre-recorded music that they wanted yeah. to try it with or, yeah, uh, you know, or, or, or have hired, you know, avant-garde musicians or rock musicians or whatever yeah. did yeah. you ever did you ever get to see when you the version you saw when you were younger i'm wondering was it the uh the giorgio Moroder um a- a- edited version with the uh tinting and the rock songs put into it yes that was the one that was exactly yeah. i was gonna say there was like rock music in the, in yeah. the one that i saw when yeah. i was younger yeah no ab- absolutely and it's funny because that same sense of like working with rhythm I I do that with text a lot so I used a lot of text and spoken word in my work my physical theater work my live work but also my film work where I would cut up that material in order for it to become a piece of music in and of itself I was really influenced by the idea of North by Glenn Gould um and there's another piece called Dark and Stormy Night, which does something similar. And we're we're going to be doing that in the piece that I'm making with the students at the university. Um, so that's 
sound editing and picture editing of like creating a rhythm out of things that you wouldn't necessarily expect. There's that wonderful moment in, um, I think it's Ballet Mechanique, where the old woman is coming up the stairs and it's jump cut, taking her back four steps. And then she, but it's done in this rhythm. I always love that. I love that about film that you could choreograph not just with the bodies there but also through your edits and your cuts that's why I'm friends with a lot of editors <laughs> <laughs> to bring it back a little bit to the beginning of the conversation uh, one of the things I was really marveling at with Metropolis is how great the costumes are I'm, I mean they're not these really outlandish futuristic designs it's very subtle but very clear as to you know if the person's coming from the working class or they're coming from the world above or or from some other kind of fantasy world altogether you know the the robot of course and everything and you um you worked uh early in your career on, on costume design and and that was something i was thinking about uh when i was thinking about your work and and looking at at the films you've worked on and looking at your work uh is something comparable the way a, a a costume designer contributes uh to to a finished film is, is comparable to the way someone who's choreographing and and doing movement um do you ever think about costumes uh, i imagine you know having directed whole productions yourself that it's it's very much a part of uh your design yeah yeah i mean and in a lot of my early work i did the costume design as well then i brought in a costume designer on um, Heart Thief, which is a film I did for Channel 4, but had really clear ideas. I wanted this because we had a creature that was essentially composed of memories. That's kind of, if you took someone's memories and made a creature from them, that's what she was. So there were like little doll heads on her costume and bits of letters and photographs and they were sewn into the fabric Mm. um so that was you know that was a really key element in that piece and then you know referencing other films referencing metropolis referencing a lot of silent cinema in a lot of my early work in terms of the the makeup and hair and the costume elements um I still sew all the time just to relax, you know, oh, I find, you know, I find it really relaxing. Um, but the nice thing is, is I, because I'd done it at one point myself, I have an understanding of what it entails. And um, it's the same when I'm writing and I'm writing, say, a, a really physical set piece. I have an understanding of how that will work in the real world, how that will work for us a stunt coordinator, how that will work for a movement coordinator, how that will work for the director. Um, The downside of that is sometimes I'll be like, oh, this is going to cost so much money. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then then I think, oh, should I rewrite it? So the challenge when you kind of know how the sausage is made is to still allow yourself to kind of be a little bit free at that really what I think of as the cheapest lowest stake part of the filmmaking process which is the development of the script often involving a small number of people Um, but then it's also nice when you know how it's made because also you think oh I've seen that 
many, many times before. So you're always aiming for that surprise as well, you know, challenging the conventions of the genre whilst also delivering on an emotional journey. You know, it's it's a challenge for commercial filmmakers. You want to surprise your audiences, but not too much. If you diverge from the conventions of the genre too much, then your viewers like, what is this? This isn't sure. what I signed on for. Well, I also imagine it's better to act something on the page uh, than to <laughs> go so far as to spend the budget's money to come up with something that turns out to be, you know, at odds with the rest of the production or, you know, stands out too much. And it's just, you know, yeah. something you I've, has that ever been uh, your experience? Have you ever created something that just was too, uh, too, too? Too much at too stood out too much from the rest of the production. I think that happens a lot with dance numbers that are within a narrative film. It's like everyone's kind of excited about having it in, but so often it will get cut because it's not moving the story forward. Mm. Um, sometimes they do. Like there's a lovely tango between Colin Firth and Jessica Biel in a little film called Easy Virtue. And that was a very important scene. You know, there was a big emotional journey that was being told through that scene. So it probably couldn't have been cut. But the film wouldn't have hung together. But often that isn't the case. It's, it's like just nice icing, but not necessarily essential. Um, so I think as a writer, I always think that way. Oh, this is really, it, it, it either needs to be so interesting and so innovative and so cool that it's the scene that everybody talks about or it right. really, really needs to be part of the overall whole. And I yeah. think if it doesn't meet those two criteria, then yeah, you got to cut it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was noticing recently, I was looking at a lot of 40s films that um, even before the MGM musicals, where you have like in um, Singing in the Rain and, and the bandwagon, these ballets in the middle of the film that you know, don't move the story along at all. I mean, maybe they have a little bit to do with, you know, in Singing in the Rain, it's this, this idea of a production that never happens. And you see this whole, you know, the uh, yeah. the whole uh, gotta dance number. And, and, uh, and, that, and that's apparently, I guess, came out of, what uh, Agnes DeMille did for Oklahoma on Broadway, mm. where you know there wasn't a lot of you know choreographed dancing in the show, but the but the show stopped for this surreal ballet without any singing that you know kind of summed up the story in ballet form at that point, but re- really is something that you know didn't serve the story and could easily have been cut, but it's something that just wowed everybody who saw it. And it's, so then it began to filter out into different Broadway musicals and then in, into Hollywood, too, where a, a Hollywood uh, yeah. movie, even a non-musical, would stop and you'd have a 10-minute a ball, a ballet in the middle yeah. of it. I think it absolutely can work if it's, like I said, if it's like, yeah, this is just brilliant. Or, you know, if you're wanting to show that a character is really happy, you know, it's it's a useful way of kind of showing emotional state. But also... People who watch musicals, whether they're on film or on stage, that's part now of the conventions of that genre. They expect that. Sure. I think 
it's really challenging when you're working in something that isn't a musical and you throw that in because that's really kind of challenging the genre. And in a way, that's, you know, kind of what Edgar was doing a Baby Driver is bringing some of those conventions in from musicals and bringing it into an action film. Um, and I think there's even... And in Scott Pilgrim, it's similar. There's even seven fights, I think, in Scott Pilgrim. And often in a musical, you'll have seven, a right. minimum of like seven, seven to 13 numbers. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's what, what I really like about genre movies is you have a lot of constraints. And then within all of those constraints, I feel like there's a lot of freedom. I think it's what I like about screenwriting as well versus, say, writing a novel. I just feel like there's so many more constraints, and I like that. I like that there's all those constraints that I get to work within. I'm, I've written a TV series where I've done the, the Bible in the first couple of episodes, and uh, I originally started writing that idea as a novel and just sort of like was like, ugh, you know. <laughs> I'm going mm. as soon as I started writing it as a TV series, it was so much better. Yeah. I was so much better at doing that than I was at writing a novel. Because um, it gave you more rules, more more of a structure. In other words, yeah, you know, you can do this in a novel. You gotta yeah. stop at a certain point and for a TV show, right? You Yeah, there's just a lot of constraints. There's a lot of baked in structure that I just find super, super useful. Um because there's still so much that you can do within those constraints and I think as an artist I always liked that I always liked the things that had clear boundaries on them and then I could be really I could play around a lot within that once you understand the rules really well then if you're deliberately choosing to break them it's very conscious and I think it's a delightful kind of surprise I'm always really delighted when I know the conventions are something really well and I'm surprised by it I really like Cabin in the Woods for that. Yeah. I like a lot of Josh Whedon stuff for that. You know, it just, it's that delightful surprise of you're expecting one thing. And then it's like, oh, that's brilliant. That's very funny. <laughs> you know, Edgar does a similar thing. I mean, his work's very genre. And, and, and that's providing specific inspiration for you now as you write your, your horror project? My horror project is 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 not really comedy actually. It's much darker. So for that and it's also kind of political. Yeah, I haven't watched as much stuff for that. I've been much more in the writing and in the story. But other stuff I've done is much more rooted in other films. But yeah, I know that's how Edgar really works that way. He work, he watches and watches and watches. And I'm actually working with another director on the horror dance project and that's how he works as well like every time I speak to him he's watched like 20 films but for me I'm out reading the news for seven hours or I'm you know it my inspiration has always come from the world more than from other art forms first and then I'll start looking at the other art forms but first I have to figure out the question that I'm trying to answer and the whole reason for telling a story. And for me, that's rooted either in some very lived personal experience of my own or more often it's some sociological question that I'm asking and trying to answer. And then I'll use the characters to, you know, 
instead of being a sociologist, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. And I think horror, you know, suits itself to that. You know, I always think of it as, you know, you can have really psychological horror, but I think, you know, like zombie movies in particular, to me, they're very sociological. Shaun of the Dead is in many respects. Oh, as sure. is World's End, you know, that the, the, they were dealing with, with like what happens when you monkey around with the wider social world and you put your characters through that. Um, and there might be like a personal journey as there was in Shaun of the Dead and there is in World's End. Really, in World's End, it felt very autumnal to me, you know, middle-aged. There was that, there was that little emotional journey in there as well, which I feel like probably came from Simon. But that's yeah. just my opinion. Um, that I always really liked in World's End. I was never quite sure if that came across as much in the final film as I felt like was there in the script. But it's impossible for me to judge because when you're working on something, you just don't have that ability to zoom out on it in the same way. When you read the script before you've made it, it's like you're seeing it from a stranger's perspective. And then after you've made it, you can no longer view it that way. Yeah, I think it plays as a, you know, uh, a, a middle age uh, view of younger generations and how and their reliance on kind of hive mind technology and a reluctance to adopt that and to and to trust it looking on it. Uh, <laughs> ambiguously, to say the least, especially yeah. in, the, in the way that that story plays out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, and it feels, and it feels very personal. To wrap up, can you talk a little bit about more about the uh, project you're working on with the students here, and 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 your other work while you're uh, while you're with us in Madison? Yeah, sure. So I've been teaching a course about creativity. Um, I decided I wanted to do something where where I zoomed out and, and thought what joins all these different kind of art forms together because it's a residency that's intentionally integrated arts, cross arts. I wanted to like, what's the foundation of all of these things? So that, and that's kind of creativity. So that's what the course is about. But there are also, we're making a collaborative piece. We're also looking at collaboration and, you know, the challenges in making collaborative work because really that's what film sits. It's absolutely a collaborative art form. It isn't done by one person in their bedroom uh, or their studio. And uh, so we're making a piece that uses film, photography, movement, probably harks back in terms of the ideas to some of my earlier work, but also I just, the question I had, and this kind of comes from someone who's lived in other countries and always grappled with a sense of every time I'd be at a party and someone would ask me where I was from, I would just have this moment of oh, sigh. How do I, how do I even explain or tell this story because it's so complicated? And then I thought, I'm not the only person that has that. And it was always fascinating to me that that there's, that was always one of the first questions that people ask each other at parties. What do you do? Where are you from? And it's such a loaded question. So I really wanted to interrogate that question and interrogate ideas around 
identity and it's linked to geography, notions of immigration and diaspora, um, how our identities don't have to be essentialized and immutable, that they can change throughout our lives. And that includes national identity. And of course, I would say that as someone who's a dual national, you know, I'm, I have both British and American passports. I grew up in Mexico until I was five, grew up speaking Spanish before I learned English or at the same time that I was learning English. Um, so from a really young age, I always remember thinking, what is this business of saying that you're American? I thought I was Mexican and then was told I wasn't. And I, I was mystified by that. It was just fascinating to me. I was only five. <laughs> you know? And I was already kind of like, what does it mean to be American? And being told at that point, oh, no, you're American. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, what does that mean to be American? So I always had this like slippery grasp of identity around that and then left the country relatively young and spent my entire adult life in England and that became part of my identity and then came back here and then had that weird reverse culture shock you get when you've lived somewhere else for so long. Um, so those were kind of some of the ideas but I also wanted to be the students work as well so I'm absolutely encouraging them they'll be very involved in the devising of the work and um, drawing on their own strengths and skills in terms of what aspects they'll be more or less involved in. Um, they'll be interviewing members of the public, again, asking those questions about where are you from. Um, I'm using, exploring, kind of projecting onto bodies and then filming that and then projecting that. So you get these like, this almost this palimpsest idea of our personal stories where really we're looking at our past through our present lens so everything is kind of layered one thing on top of another even when we tell our family stories we're telling them probably changing them slightly and embellishing them each time it's the same when we tell our own stories you know this idea of them being completely true I mean we're retelling them we're adding things we're essentially writing our narratives as we live our lives and I also happened to have this unusual thing. And on my mother's side of the family, I come from the McCoys, i.e. the McCoys in the Hatfields. And that's part of my family's story. And it's discussed at family reunions. And that's like, you know, so that's also interesting when part of your family's story is this public story, which is told in films and yeah, TV, TV, TV miniseries. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's just kind of crazy. And like in England, it, no one thought, you know, when I would say, oh, well, I'm a McCoy, they'd be like, so? <laughs> <laughs> like it meant nothing. And then I remember the first time I was working with an American dancer and we were talking about where we're from. I said, oh, yeah, I'm a McCoy. And she's like, what? So she knew what that meant. She knew what that was. But, you know. So, but I think everybody has those really curious, interesting things about where they come from. And most Americans, you know, when you actually look back, it's not like they all originally came from here. So that was the other thing I found really interesting is you have this like strong American identity and yet it's a country that everybody came from everywhere else. Sure. You know, other than Native Americans who legitimately um, were here first. 
So I also found that really curious, kind of coming back at it again, having been an expat for so long. And and uh, will there be a, a way for uh, our audience or the the public to access the work uh, later w- when you're completed with the project? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the intention, and obviously we with COVID-19, we have to be a bit nimble around all of this, but the intention is that there will be a public exhibit that people will be able to go to in person if everything falls apart between now and then in the wider world and we have to do it virtually, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But that's certainly the intention um, and the hope. And and then at the same time, I'm another kind of just little research project in the back of my head is sort of looking at gender in the film industry and just some of the structural reasons that lead, led, have led to a puzzle that I've always know, always tried to figure out, which is why, so across the board, you have very low gender equity in the film industry. But having said that, around the roles, there's big variance. So some of it, I think, might be due to equipment in being able to carry heavy equipment but not all of it like I've never could never quite puzzle out why there are a lot more female producers and exec producers than there are directors that's as powerful a role and in some cases more powerful so that's a puzzle that I'm also so I've been speaking to a a kind of more quantitative based sociologist about maybe trying to figure that one out and then I've got the dance horror project that I'm writing with uh, Shonda Sparengo who's a filmmaker who's also coming in to work with the students I've written an animated feature called City of Clouds which we're currently shopping I've written a TV series called Blood Water Dust which is at Pitch Dark and Lookbook stage which we're currently shopping and um, I wrote a sci-fi musical and another sci-fi TV series, which is in development. And then I'm developing a TV series based on um, Eric Olin Wright's book, How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century. So we're going to be conducting interviews for that probably in May, locally here in Madison. Um, And that's a duck series that we've been developing over the last year. That's wonderful. That's everything. That's a lot. That's, that's great. Yeah. Well, I, I wish you the best with everything, and uh, I'm so glad uh, we got to talk today. Thanks for thanks for joining us. And, and oh, it's uh, my pleasure. <laughs>